Well, it is good to be back. Thanks for uh, praying for, for me and my family. Some of you didn't even realize I was gone. Uh, I was, but now I'm back. So uh, it is great to be back with you all. It is particularly good to, uh, to come back at 4th of July. You know, we lived in D.C. for a number of years, and we would, we would stand up on top of a really tall building and watch the fireworks as they uh, exploded over the mall. Um, but I must say... It was really good to come home. Uh, Portland very much feels like home now. It only took me four years, but it was really sweet to come back to Portland uh, for the 4th of July. So thanks, thanks for being in prayer for us. Uh, speaking of 4th of July, of course, it was uh, 238 years ago, just on Friday, that we declared our independence from British rule. And why did we declare that independence? We declared that independence for the sake of life, Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We've been at it for 238 years. It didn't happen overnight, but we now live in the freest society the world has ever known. Now, if you're white, you were able to do that for 238 years. If if you are of some other ethnicity, it's a shorter time span, and we need to acknowledge that. But, But praise God... That, that now, here in 2014, uh, people of all ethnicities, of all colors, of all races in this nation know liberty. Increasingly, though, that liberty, that, that freedom, includes, if you've been paying attention to the news this summer, it includes the ability to marry whomever you want. Now, there was a day and an age when you couldn't just marry anybody, right? Marriages were arranged. And then there was a day and an age when marriages were no longer arranged, but you had to marry inside of your social class. But these days, the freedom to marry whomever you want now even includes the freedom to marry somebody of your own gender. Founded on the notion of liberty, our society understands marriage is a basic civil liberty, essential to the pursuit of happiness by all, regardless of your sexual orientation, and, and therefore essential to living well in the world. Do, do you understand what our, our society is articulating to us there? When our society argues for the ability to marry whoever you want, they're arguing for the, the right to live well in the world. It's a, it's a particular vision of wisdom that our society is putting forward. Now this summer, we're studying the book of Proverbs, which is a book all about biblical wisdom, God's wisdom. As we've seen, wisdom is not just the art of living well in the world. Wisdom is the art of living well in God's world. Now, we've, we've spent uh, all, all of June looking at the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. And in those first nine chapters, Proverbs was making the case for wisdom rather than folly. Making the case for grounding our lives, not in our own wisdom, but in the fear of the Lord. As, as Daniel mentioned at the start of the service beginning this week, we're going to consider what the book of Proverbs has to say on five different areas of life. Five different areas. And this morning, we start with marriage. 
All of us have been affected by marriage. Many of us are married. Many more expect to be married someday. And along with the world, we would agree that marriage matters. That marriage actually is getting at a, a, a vision of wisdom, of, of living well in the world. But, but the question we ask is, is wisdom merely the freedom to marry whoever you want? Is, is that really the sum total of wisdom as it comes to the pursuit of happiness? This is not going to be a topical sermon on what the Bible has to say about marriage. We're going to focus in on what the book of Proverbs and Proverbs alone has to say about marriage. And that's not actually going to be that hard because there are not that many verses to consider. Here's how I prepared this week. And here's what I would encourage you to do for the weeks to come. Definitely that plan that Daniel laid out of reading reading a chapter a day. Great plan. If you do that, by the end of the month, you will have read the entire book of Proverbs. But when it came time for me to prepare this week, what I did is I pulled out my concordance. And I looked up every verse in the book of Proverbs that had to do with the topic of marriage. And I looked at all those verses and then I tried to begin to think about, well, what are, what are the emphases? What are the themes that Proverbs really focuses on when it comes to this topic of marriage? That's what I would encourage you to do every week in the month of July. Uh, except for the week that Tom Schreiner is preaching because he's going to be in the New Testament. But for all the other ones, take out your concordance. Think about the topic. It's there in the title of the sermon. That's where your sermon card is helpful. And try to find the verses that deal with that topic. And then ask yourself the question, what's the burden of the book of Proverbs on this topic? Where does it focus? What are its themes? Now, when I did that, here's what I came up with. Basically, Proverbs makes five basic points about marriage. It doesn't say everything that could be said about marriage. It says five things about marriage. And this is going to be the outline. First, the match matters. The match matters. Second, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Third, peace is worth more than you think. Peace is worth more than you think. Fourth, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. And fifth, be drunk with love. Be drunk with love. All right, those are, those are the five basic themes that Proverbs explores. But before we dive in, I want to give you a few words of background and then kind of a user's guide for this sermon. There is, as I've already said, a lot about marriage that Proverbs doesn't say. And it doesn't say it because it doesn't need to say it. Proverbs assumes what the rest of the Old Testament teaches about marriage. And there are three assumptions that I, I want to focus in on. First, it assumes that marriage as created by God in Genesis chapter 2 is the normal pattern of life for people. That marriage as created in Genesis 2 by God is the normal pattern of life for people. Of course, some people won't get married. Other people won't be able to marry. But the assumption is that most people will. And what that means is that marriage should be according to God's will and God's command. Monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong. Monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong. Marriage is a covenant according to God's word that, that not only provides companionship and pleasure between two people, but that should normally produce children. This is part of what marriage is all about. 
This is God's design for all people and Proverbs operates inside that pattern. Even even though it doesn't always reiterate it, it assumes it. Second, Proverbs assumes that marriage has fallen. Proverbs knows that it is not a bed of roses. It's not walking on sunshine all of the time. The Bible has a very high view of marriage, but not a romanticized view of marriage. Third, Proverbs assumes a public as well as a private character to marriage. You see, when Proverbs was written, people didn't marry for love. Marriages were actually arranged. And that's not to say that the youngsters didn't have any say in what was going to happen. Youngsters have always had a way of getting their say in. But it is to say that while marriage is understood by the Bible to be deeply personal, it isn't private. Marriage is not private. Marriage is intensely public. The the, the family and the larger community have a responsibility towards the couple and vice versa. Now, I am not about to argue for arranged marriage. Though when it comes to Sarah, I may change my mind. But that's that's not that's not what I'm arguing. What I do want us to think about, I'm not going to say any more about this, but I want you to consider that our culture really has been harmed by the reduction of marriage to a private choice. Having having lost the public character of marriage, we have lost something very, very important. All right, so that's kind of the background. How should you listen to this sermon? Well, if you are yet to be married, Proverbs is for you. It is telling you what to look for in a spouse and then what to do once you have one. So, So Proverbs is your kind of book. For the already married, well, your choice has already been made. But it's never too late to learn from Proverbs and to become the kind of spouse that wisdom commends. For the not married, either because you were formerly married, but you are so no longer because of divorce or death, or because you've never married. I want you to consider as we go through this sermon on marriage, I want you to consider how you can encourage the marriages around you. But I also want you to consider the reality of which earthly marriage is but a foretaste. And I want you to let it stoke your desire for the real thing, the thing that will not end, the thing that will last forever. You understand that earthly marriage is just an hors d'oeuvre. It's just an hors d'oeuvre. It's not the feast. And if you are a Christian, whether whether you're single and, and never married or, or, or formerly, met, formerly married, but but no longer. Oh, oh, friend, your place at the feast is secure. And marriage is teaching you something about that feast that you're going to be at someday. All right. So there's, there's the user's guide, how to, how to listen to this sermon. So let's dive in. Five things that Proverbs says about marriage. First, the match matters. The match matters. Now, we're going to be in a lot of different Proverbs. I'm going to be reading them probably pretty quickly. Uh, you're welcome to turn with me there. The references are going to appear on the screen behind me so that you don't miss the reference. I, I don't want you to lose that. Uh, 
but, but the verse will not appear. So you'll either need to listen to me read the verse or you, you'll need to turn quickly and find the verse yourself. All right. So first, the match matters. And that begins with Proverbs chapter 12, verse four, Proverbs 12, four, which reads a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. But a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. There is no more important decision that you will make in this life from a human perspective than the decision of who to marry. Marry wisely. And Proverbs teaches us that your spouse will be like a crown on your head. What's the point of a crown? Well, the point of a crown is it marks out who the king is. It makes because, you know, a a guy walks into a room wearing nice clothes and you can't tell that he's a king because there are lots of other guys in the room wearing nice clothes. Oh, but the king has a crown on his head. The the, the crown marks the king out as splendid, as majestic, as as somebody to be honored, as someone that you actually want to be like someday. Proverbs says this is what a wife of noble character does for her husband. And, And honestly, vice versa, because even though this book was written to young men preparing for marriage, I think so many of the lessons work in both directions. They apply to women, not all of the lessons, but a lot of the lessons apply to women just as they just as much as they do to men. Now, now the word for for noble character that's used here, it's actually it's really the idea of of strength. I I don't know what you think of when you think of nobility. I think many of us Americans think of dandies, you know, people who are spoiled, uh, people who have just a lot of privilege. That's not what's being talked about here. A wife of noble character, a spouse of noble character is a spouse of strength, a spouse who has great competence. In other words, a wife of noble character is a wife of, of godly conviction and the ability, the competence to live those convictions out in daily life. Now, on the other hand, Proverbs twelve four tells us that you marry foolishly and your spouse is going to be like rot in your bones. What happens when bones become brittle and weak? You tell me what happens. They break. That's exactly right. This is the effect of a of a, of a foolish spouse who brings moral shame on the marriage. A foolish spouse undermines the marriage itself until it finally breaks and falls to ruin. So right off the bat, your choice of a spouse will either make you or break you in the home, in your community, in the church. And friends, that makes sense. This isn't hyperbole here. That makes sense given the nature of marriage. Marriage is a union. It's it's a covenant in which two people actually become one. That's the way Moses describes it in Genesis chapter 2. So closely related at every level That Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 5, which we heard er, read earlier, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. There's that union, that two becoming one. If you join yourself to someone who does not fear God, say the Proverbs, well, then don't be surprised that trouble and heartache follow. But if you marry wisely, don't be surprised. That blessing follows. So for those of you that are looking for a spouse, 
Here's the problem with making your choice based on nothing more than, than chemistry. You know, everybody talks about chemistry. I've got to find the right chemistry. I'm looking for that soulmate. The problem with chemistry is that chemistry isn't constant. It doesn't, it doesn't last. Chemistry when you're dating, well, what that speaks to is how you're engaging one another at that moment emotionally. But you're going to change. And so is your spouse over a long marriage. What really matters then over the course of a lifelong marriage, what will cause you to stand out like a king with a crown on his head is a spouse of godly conviction and godly ability. So single folks, look for that. Be looking for godliness. Now, there's all sorts of advice I could give you in what to look for and how to look for a spouse. I think one great place to start is a church inside a local church where where you're dealing with other single people that already agree with the same things that you agree with about God, that have the same kind of convictions, they're being taught in the same direction. But what Proverbs really stresses is that ultimately a good match is a gift from God. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19, 14. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, you understand what's going on with these verses when you remember that this is written to people whose marriages were arranged, right? They didn't have a whole lot of choice. And so they very much recognized that if they got a good spouse, and that was a gift from God. We're not that different. And I think those of you that have been married a long time will know what I'm talking about here. We're not that different. Yeah, 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 yeah. We marry for love. We make that initial choice for love. But the reality is, I don't care how long you dated, everyone marries a stranger. Everyone marries a stranger. So single folks, are you praying that God would give you a prudent and a wise spouse? Are you praying that he will lead you and do better for you than you can do on your own? You should. Because a good spouse is good match. This is a gift from the Lord. Now, for those of us uh, that, that are already married, um, well, the, cho- the choice is already made. Okay. We don't get to go back and undo the choice. But I wonder what you're doing with your choice. I wonder if you're at all like me and you're spending a lot of your time and energy trying to fix your spouse. Can I suggest that a more fruitful endeavor would be to work on becoming a crown for your spouse rather than trying to fix the head that you sit on? Okay, you really don't have much ability to affect the shape of the head that you sit on. But you have a lot of ability with the help of the Holy Spirit to become a crown on that head. Give yourself to that. And be thankful. I know that might be hard for some of us. But your spouse is a gift from God. Be thankful for that gift. Look for ways to be thankful. Tell your spouse what you're thankful for. The match matters. So choose wisely. Second. 
Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Turn to Proverbs uh, chapter 11, verse 22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Proverbs pulls no punches. A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is a pig. That's what Proverbs is saying. The beauty of the ring doesn't change the nature of the beast. Now, Proverbs says here that what's needed is, is discretion. What, what, what does it mean by, by discretion? Discretion means having sound moral judgment. It's actually a, a, a word that is related to this idea of being able to taste whether something is good or not. Having good taste. Here, it's really that sense of having good moral taste. Wisdom is confronting us here. No matter how good someone looks on the outside, if they don't know what's good on the inside, they're just a pig with lipstick. There it is. Proverbs pulls no punches. Friends, what are you attracted to? Men, let me say especially to you, what are you attracted to? Ladies. How are you trying to make yourself attractive? Now, honestly, I do think this cuts both ways for men and women. Too many single Christian men out there want a godly wife for sure, but especially if she looks like a supermodel. And too many single Christian women out there want a godly husband to be sure, but it'd really help if he looked like a movie star. I don't want you to misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with physical beauty. God made it. There's nothing wrong with making yourself physically attractive. The problem is when outward beauty becomes dominant in our affections and so leads us to despise or ignore the superior beauty of godliness. The superior beauty of godliness. So women, and this is true whether you're single or you're married, are you giving yourself to cultivating an inner beauty, as Peter instructs us in First Peter chapter 3, verses 4 to 5. Because you see, beauty is meant to do one thing and one thing only, and that is attract. That's what beauty does. Beauty attracts. Are you, women, giving yourself to producing a kind of spiritual beauty that attracts a godly man? Men, are you cultivating an attraction to such beauty? Now, look, you can't pull anything off over on me here because I'm a man. You can't sit there and say to me, well, I'm just attracted to this. I can't help it. Ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Of course, we can help what we're attracted to. We have a lot of control over what we're attracted to. As a married man, I am constantly having to. Well, I shouldn't say constantly, but it, but it happens. I'm having to squelch attraction to something that I should not be attracted to or to someone I should not be attracted to. And I am needing to give myself actively to cultivating a sense of attraction to my wife, who is a good gift to God from me. I mean, for me. So men. <laughs> she's not for me. She's for me. So men, are you actively, actively cultivating a sense of attraction to spiritual beauty? 
Do not think that you can just say, well, I can't help it. I'm just attracted to who I'm attracted to. It's not true. Give yourself to this. Physical beauty never lasts in a fallen world. And brothers, especially in our digital world, it is rarely real. It is an illusion. But spiritual beauty grows and grows and grows. Beauty is not finally what the eye sees on the outside, but what the heart reveals from the inside. Become that kind of beautiful person. Be attracted to that kind of beautiful person. For beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Third, peace is worth more than you think. Peace is worth more than you think. All right, this is going to be painful. But I want you to listen as I read the next five Proverbs. The the references will be on the screen. Proverbs 19.13. A foolish son is his father's ruin. And a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. Proverbs 27, verses 15 to 16. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Proverbs 21, 9. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And then in case we didn't get it, Proverbs 25, 24. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Yep, it's in there twice. <laughs> Proverbs twenty-one nineteen. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. What is peace worth? I'll tell you what it's worth. According to Proverbs, it is worth more than all the comforts of home. It is worth more than all the ease of civilization. Desert life is better than life in a home filled with quarrels and strife. Sleeping in an unfinished attic is better than sharing a bed with a quarrelsome spouse. And what's more, as Proverbs makes very clear in these verses, all the compromising, all the pleading, all the threatening, all the negotiations are not going to change an angry spouse. You might as well try and restrain the wind or grasp oil. Proverbs compares a quarrelsome spouse to constant dripping. I've been doing plumbing work in my home lately. You guys know what this is like. You know what that drip is like. You can't, you don't hear it during the day. You know, when you're busy, you don't hear it. But when you're ready to sleep, when all you want is peace, there it is. Drip, drip, drip. I mean, you can sleep through the truck's trundling by many of you can sleep through the baby crying oh but that drip (laughs) that drip you can't escape it why can't you change why can't you escape an angry spouse why does proverbs use these images well i think james tells us James asks the question, why are there quarrels and fights among you? James chapter four, verses one and two. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
You want something, but don't get it. You see, you can't change or escape the quarrelsome spouse because the problem is not the circumstances. Right? The problem is a discontented heart that circumstances will never be able to satisfy. Oh, the discontented heart thinks that if I could just change my circumstances, I wouldn't be discontent anymore. I'd stop being quarrelsome. I'd stop being angry. But friends, it's not true. And experience teaches us this. How many unhappy single people get married only to find that now they're married, they're still unhappy? Because their spouse just isn't what they'd hoped. Their kids aren't what they hoped. Their house, their career, their friendships, none of it is what they'd hoped. Augustine was right. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Contentment is not finally found in our circumstances. Contentment is found in the Lord. You know, no one sets out to marry an angry spouse. No one sets out to to be an angry spouse. But many of us do marry such a spouse and many of us are such a spouse. So single folks, ask yourself, is the person that I want to marry content in the Lord? I can't think of a more important question to ask when you're considering marriage. But even more importantly, if you want to be married, ask yourself, am I? Am I content in the Lord? Because if you're not, marriage is not going to solve it. Marriage is not going to solve it. Now, for those of us already married, we need to ask the same question. Where is our contentment? Is it in our spouse? If it's in our spouse, then we're going to, we're going to nag. We're going to complain. We're going to quarrel. Is our contentment in our kids? Well, if it is, we're going to be on them. We're going to be on them because my contentment is, is dependent on my kid turning out a certain way. You know, it, it just won't do to try harder not to be angry. I don't know if any of you all are tempted to that. Any of you who are, who, who experience quarrelsomeness and, and anger in the family. I mean, I, I, I had to apologize to two of my sons this morning for getting angry at them last night. And, and I know this temptation. I'm just going to try harder not to be angry anymore. It doesn't work. Now, what has to change in me? What has to change in you? There needs to be a change in the source of my contentment. Which means there needs to be a change in the object of my worship. When I turn my spouse into an idol, when I turn my kids into an idol, and my idol doesn't come through for me, I'm angry at my idol. I need to repent. Some of you need to repent of that kind of idol worship and instead find our contentment in the Lord. Otherwise, we are just grasping at oil. Peace is worth more than you think. And it's only found in the Lord. Fourth, fourth, if you play with fire, you will get burned. 
If you play with fire, you will get burned. Look at Proverbs chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. Daniel touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. One of the things that's amazing to me in in this passage is that wisdom does not tell us to avoid adultery because it's wrong. The law tells us that. God's law has already told us that, and Proverbs assumes it. When Proverbs comes to the the matter, wisdom tells us to avoid adultery because we're going to get burned. The answer to the questions that I read there in, in verses 27 and 28 can, can you scoop fire into your life without getting burned? Can you walk on coals without getting burned? No. The answer is assumed. It's no, of, of course not. If you do this, you're going to get hurt. So it is with infidelity. If you are unfaithful to your spouse, you not might get burned. Not probably will get burned. You will get burned. Not only is it going to hurt you, it's going to hurt your spouse. It's going to hurt your kids. It's going to hurt the other party that you commit adultery with. It's going to hurt their spouse. It's going to hurt their kids. And actually, the list just keeps going. There's so many ways to fall into unfaithfulness and infidelity for married people these days. In our minds, through pornography, through romance novels, through various rom-com movies, emotionally, with someone who just, you know, understands me better than my spouse does, who listens better and who most importantly is, is available. He, he's, he's there for me. She's, she's there for me and my spouse just never is. Physically, as one thing leads to another in a heated moment or in a more deliberate and determined affair. There are so many ways for infidelity to creep in. And so Proverbs warns us here in chapter 6. Guard your heart and your marriage. Do not play with fire. Don't, don't even let it get started with, with, with that glance. With, with that thought. With that daydream. Don't go anywhere near temptation. Don't go to that website that is fine. But always seems to lead to that other website. That's not so fine. Don't be doing late night solitary web browsing. Don't be taking that long lingering business lunch with that cute associate of the opposite sex. Don't be engaging and don't allow others to engage you in that flirtatious conversation that feels so kind of innocent and fun. But really isn't. Don't entertain the bitterness that opens the door to infidelity. Don't indulge the self-pity that justifies the betrayal. I don't think I need to elaborate on any of this. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. 
If you're single, let me just encourage you. If you're single and you're in a dating relationship, don't practice infidelity now by being intimate with someone that you're not married to. You might you might find yourself thinking, well, we're not having sex. You know, we're, we're, just, we're, just, we're just kissing. We're just uh, holding each other. Single folks, married folks do that too. And they call it foreplay. So, if you don't want to get used to being intimate with someone that you're not married to, don't start practicing it while you're dating. Don't play with fire. And what if it's already happened? What if you've already played with fire? Brothers and sisters, repent. Seek forgiveness from God. Seek forgiveness from your partner. Christ died for adulterers. Christ died for the unfaithful adulterer. Because God is in the business of redemption. But don't deceive yourself. In the Old Testament, adultery was a capital offense. There was no mercy. And the New Testament, when it picks up this theme, it affirms that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Unrepentant infidelity earns God's judgment. He, he compares it to idolatry. It's that serious. So, so friend, if you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you're, you're in the midst of infidelity, or if you're feeling tempted to infidelity, let me just plead with you, even if hurting your spouse and your kids is not enough to dissuade you, then be concerned for your own soul. Have a concern for yourself. Because if you play with fire, you will be burned. But that's not the final word. That's not the final word of Proverbs on marriage. Finally, do, if you're not supposed to play with fire, what should you do? Do get drunk with love. Be drunk with love. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? I said scripture doesn't romanticize marriage. It actually does something better. It unabashedly celebrates the romantic and sexual love between a husband and a wife. This passage here is about as close as we get in the book of Proverbs to the Song of Solomon, which is the main book of wisdom on marriage. And, and this is short, but it's, it's not a bad passage. God made men and women to desire each other, to, to delight in each other. And the context for that delight is 
marriage. The picture here in these verses is of a a young bride and groom. They, They might as well be on their honeymoon. But this is what Proverbs says your 25th anniversary should be like. As well as your 10th anniversary and your 13th anniversary and your 33rd anniversary. In other words, this is what marriage should be like all of the time. Filled with delight in each other. Literally saturated with one another. Uh, to, to, to be captivated, which is the verb that's, that's used there in, in Proverbs chapter 5, to be captivated by, by his wife's physical beauty, by his wife's physical love. It's literally to be drunk with her. To be inebriated and intoxicated with her love and with her beauty. That's the language that Proverbs uses. Friends, this isn't porn. This is God. This is God's word. This is how God made us. It's what he intends for us in our marriages. Now, it's not going to happen without the other things that we've already looked at. It's not going to last if we haven't chosen wisely. And it's not going to satisfy our hearts if we aren't ultimately content in the Lord. And it cannot be found. This kind of inebriated love cannot be found outside the exclusive commitment of marriage. But make no mistake, this is what God intends for our marriages. Absolutely, utterly intoxicated with love for each other. Now, if you're not married... Let me just say to you, and I, and I realize this is easy for me to say because I am married. But if you're not married, hold out for this. Hold out for this. It is worth it. And if you haven't held out for it, it's not too late to start. Jesus didn't just die for the adulterers. Jesus died for the fornicators too. Married couples. I don't know what your sex life is like and I don't want to know. But I know you should be having sex more than you are. I'm just sure of it from the way that the Bible talks about it. But I'm also sure that it's not just the sex. It's about the delight and the love and the joy we take in each other. So married couples, do you take time to just notice each other? Right. To be to be grateful for one another, to be curious about one another, because Curiosity almost always precedes delight. Have you become so encumbered with the toil of kids and house and career that you're a you're basically business partners? You know, you're you're a great team. But you're no longer lovers. Brothers and sisters as Christians. We should be the best lovers because we know that that is what God made us to be. Why would God have done that? Why would God have created us to be lovers like Proverbs chapter 5 describes? He obviously could have done it a different way. Because this is where we want to conclude. He created marriage this way. So that we would know what his love for us is like. Because it's right here. In this almost graphic passage of Proverbs 5. That I think we come closest in the book of Proverbs to Christ's love 
for us. And it's ironic, of course, because all of us are spiritual idolaters. All of us have given our hearts to idols. We have gone after other spouses. We have have worshipped. We have have prostituted ourselves at the idols of convenience and money and ease and pleasure and control and safety. But in the gospel, God has loved us lavishly. I think here's where the context of arranged marriage is is actually really important. You see, because, because God is the father who wanted to arrange a marriage for his son. And so he picked out a bride. The church, God's people, Old Testament and new. He picked out a bride. But the bride was unfaithful. Like all of us have been. The bride, even before her wedding day, went out and prostituted herself. But the son decided to love the bride anyway. The son came and gave his life on the cross, dying for our adultery so that his blood would would cleanse us of our impurity. This is what we heard about earlier in Ephesians chapter 5. And even though we were unfaithful, now, Jesus Christ is, is, is cleansing us as we repent of our idolatry, as we put our faith in him. And in that cleansing, he's not just taking away our guilt. He is making us radiantly beautiful. Do you get it? He's making us attractive to him so that he desires us. This is what growth and holiness is all about as a church. And as individuals, not about rules, not about laws and legalism, but about love, about about beauty, about attraction and desire. Jesus is making us beautiful. He is a bridegroom that is drunk with love for his bride. That's you if you're a Christian. And he is coming. He is coming back someday to take us home to be with him. Friends, it's here that we see God's wisdom for marriage. If, if, you're, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This is what I would want you to consider. I would want you to consider just how great God's love for you is in Jesus Christ. I would ask you to turn away from, from those other lovers that are always disappointing you. And turn instead to Christ. For here is wisdom. Not that we can marry whoever we want. But that our earthly, faithful, exclusive, delight-filled marriages might be a picture of his marriage. To his people. And that we might be included in that great wedding feast of the Lamb. Married or not. Happy in your marriage or not. Let this heavenly marriage be your desire. And may our marriages point to that marriage that will never end. Would you join me in prayer? Let's just take a moment in the quietness of our hearts to to think about what we've heard. To consider how we might apply God's word to our lives.
what we want to take away with us. Father, we pray that you would give us in our marriages a a, a picture, a, a glimpse of your great love for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that our marriages would would reinforce and, and would teach us what it means that, that that Jesus Christ loves us. Father, we pray that we would be attracted to that love. We ask that that love would change our marriages, would change us. Father, give us give us hearts that are inflamed with such passion. For, for our spouses, and most of all for Jesus. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.